Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Hunting the Phantom, the mystery of Shelby Thornburg's murder. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Police have just issued surveillance pictures of the man that they're looking for in the murder of 20-year-old Shelby Thornborough. She was found dead in her apartment back in November. She was killed about 9 o'clock on November the 4th of last year. We're told she was killed inside her apartment at 7500 Bel Air. Let me show you some pictures just released of the suspect. Police believe that he met her not long before her death. We're told they texted back and forth, uh, but that phone was not registered, so they couldn't trace that person. Those surveillance cameras captured images of the suspect at the victim's apartment building that night. Investigators believe he could be related to this crime. They tell us that he wore light-colored long-sleeve shirts, shorts, as well as, get this, wore sunglasses at night, even though, again, it was dark outside. He also wore tennis shoes and those glasses. We're told they met and talked not long before she died. Her sister cannot understand. On November 4, 2015, in the heart of Houston, Texas, the vibrant life of a beautiful, petite, 20-year-old blonde came to a chilling and abrupt end. The sanctity of her luxurious high-rise apartment was thrust into the macabre and became the haunting backdrop for a heinous and unexpected crime. When Shelby Thornburg was found alone, nude, and covered in her own blood, the murderer a shadowy figure who appeared to materialize from the darkness disappeared just as swiftly, leaving behind a mere 22 minutes of his sinister presence captured forever on CCTV. At 8.34 p.m., the specter appeared to enter the Conquistador apartment building, and by 8.57 p.m., he slivered away, sunglasses concealing the vileness of his deeds, an expressionless face, a mask void of empathy and feeling his left hand precariously tucked and protected away in his left hip pocket. Nearly eight long years have passed, and the shroud of mystery surrounding this cold-blooded killer remains unbroken, with no solid leads beside a frozen still shot of the mystery man. With scant evidence left at the crime scene, devoid of any discernible bioevidence, Besides a few strands of hair and unusable DNA genetic material, this elusive perpetrator seems to have dissipated into the night breeze like a deadly fog, leaving no trace of his existence. 
Join us as we delve into the depths of this chilling case, exploring the haunting possibility of a true live serial killer that may still be hunting and haunting the ever-growing Texas Triangle. Shelby's family, the city of Houston, needs justice to be served. We all need justice to be served. The FBI, recognizing the risk of not capturing this wanton killer, has placed him on their VICAP program. But will it be enough to unmask this faceless specter lurking in the shadows? Life for the Thornburg Croker girls was far from easy. Growing up in the cattle town of Fort Worth, Texas, should have been centered around playing dress-up, princess sleepovers, and tea parties. But that was a life that the two sisters, Christina Denise and Shelby Jean Thornburg Croker, could only imagine. Christina was a Gemini, born on June 3, 1993. On this day in history, Janet Jackson had the number one song on the charts, That's the Way Love Goes. It was most likely playing somewhere in the hospital the day Christina Denise blessed the lives of her 26-year-old father, Robert Elwood Thornburg Jr., and her much younger mother, Leslie Jean Croker, who was barely 18. Janet's song, like an ominous foreshadowing of pending heartbreak, would set the tone for the future as the couple's shaky marriage began to strain under the pressure of adulting. At 20, Christina's mom, Leslie, would become unexpectedly pregnant by a guy named Shannon as her and Robert yo-yoed in their on-again, off-again relationship. Shannon would never truly be a part of baby Shelby's life in any significant way. Shelby Jean, a fiery Leo, was a bright and bubbly bundle of joy, but her arrival instantly strained the crumbling relationship between Leslie and Robert, who struggled with the responsibility of taking on a child that wasn't his own. He would, however, make the decision to place his name on Shelby's birth certificate, despite eventually separating from Leslie. That's the way love goes. Although Robert and Leslie struggled with their relationship, marred with Leslie fighting the demons of depression, drug addiction, and multiple suicide attempts, and Robert trying to outrun a vicious cycle of criminal patterned behavior and a perverted attraction for underage girls, the Thornburg girls recalled their childhood with happy memories. Growing up with Shelby, it was fun, it was exciting, it was drama, it was whatever you can think of. It wasn't always the best, but Shelby was my best friend growing up. Yes, we fought like cats and dogs, but the best part about growing up with a sister or even another sibling, period, is just having somebody to be able to talk to and have that friend that lifelong companionship that's supposed to be there for the rest of your life until y'all grow old and y'all both pass. So growing up with her, it was good. Uh, when we were younger, Mama had always tried to do what was best for us. She would try to do our hair. She would dress us up for a cute. Um, Grandma actually would make several of our dresses so we had several pictures with homemade dresses from our grandma uh, when mama was still doing good before she got addicted to pills and stuff. On September 11th, 1998, at the age of 23, when most young adults are barely graduating college or starting new careers, Leslie would find herself struggling financially, trying to raise a family and make ends meet while dealing with her addictions as a single parent. Caring for a five-year-old Christina and a three-year-old Shelby was not an easy task, 
and Robert wasn't always around to help. About the time I was about seven or eight years old, maybe a little less than that, um, is when things really started going downhill. I tried to shelter Shelby from a lot of everything that I could have for the most part. So Shelby didn't really have the childhood that I did, I think, and experienced more of what children shouldn't have while I was over there trying to protect her. Me only being a couple of years older, I shouldn't have had to do that, but I was trying to protect my sister. After a series of bad decisions, Leslie was set on a downward spiral of legal troubles and was facing charges for writing bad checks. Within two years, her drug addiction to pills would prove near fatal, and at only seven years old, Christina would find her mother OD'd on pills. When I walked in, after all day going inside, I'd ask Mama if she was going to cook dinner or cook us lunch. Mama was sleeping all day. Well, finally that night, Shelby was going to try to go in and wake Mama up. And I was like, well, no, let me go back in there and let me see if I can get her up. And thank God I did at this point because Shelby was still outside playing with her friends and stuff. When I went in there and tried waking up Mama, Mama had OD'd on pills. And when I found her, it wasn't a matter of time before she would have ended up dying if I wouldn't have been only eight years old. I actually called 911 on Mama. So I sheltered Shelby from a lot of that. I protected her. I protected what I could have. Unfortunately, Leslie would continue to fall victim to her vices and bad choices. And on April 10th of 2001, at the age of 26, Leslie found herself entangled in a web of fraud and facing a 10-year prison sentence. The thought of prison terrified the young mother, who bore the responsibility of protecting and caring for her now 8-year-old and 6-year-old daughters. And this time, Leslie would catch a break, as the sentence was ultimately suspended. That break would be the last one she would get. On November 4, 2004, the unthinkable happened and the Department of Family and Protective Services found itself wedged between the Thornburg-Croker sisters, Christina, who was 11 years old, and Shelby, who was 9. Family Protective Services extended emergency orders and initiated legal proceedings to terminate the parental rights of both Robert, who was 37, and Leslie, who was 30. Now, when we got into foster care for the first time, It was a little different. I couldn't protect her as much, but we still had a good relationship. We still tried to hold together. We still tried to just grow up and be kids as much as we could. The first time we were placed in foster care was with a group children home that was in Wichita Falls, Texas. When we were placed in that children's home, again, I, I tried protecting her as much as I could, but she had more of a childhood than I did. When I was in the group children's home, I was molested. I never told Shelby anything about that. She had no business knowing anything about that. I tried protecting her from all the boys that were around, knowing what just happened to me. So it, it was. It wasn't until we moved out of the group foster home and we went to my aunt. We were with my aunt for probably about six months. Well, then my biological father got a hold of us. He got out of prison. This period would prove extremely difficult for Christina, who would struggle to protect her younger sister as they were both thrust into the foster care system. 
cycling them in and out of foster care and into the eventual custody of their father, Robert. And at this point, he started molesting and raping me, but I didn't know that he was doing anything to Shelby or so I didn't know anything about it until after everything was done and said. I was being put through the ringer with him. I was being raped by my biological father. All the efforts from the Department of Family and Protective Services to protect the two young girls would prove futile and Christina would be subjected to sexual abuse first within the foster care system and then at the hands of her biological father by the age of 13. She would not be aware that Robert was also sexually abusing 11-year-old Shelby as well. Sadly, at the age of 15, Christina found herself pregnant. She would give birth to a baby boy. Well, when I got pregnant with my oldest son, he kicked me out and kept him. So after him kicking me out and keeping my son, it left Shelby there. And there wasn't nothing I could do to protect Shelby. I couldn't take Shelby. I didn't have custody of Shelby. I mean, I was only 15 at the time. So Shelby ended up having to stay in Robert's home. And that's when everything started really going downhill for Shelby. He started prostituting her out. That's how Shelby ended up getting pregnant with my nephew. Throughout Shelby's teenage years, her adoptive father, Robert, would not only sexually abuse his adoptive daughter, but he would also traffic her, thrusting her into the role of an underage prostitute. This would become a devastating cycle of behavior that would plague Shelby from a very young age and follow her into adulthood. Within a year, Shelby would witness Robert's excessive and often dangerous drug abuse in front of her nephew, Christina's son, and she found the courage to notify Child Protective Services, leading to his arrest. When I left and after everything was going down, Shelby ended up calling Child Protective Services on Robert because he was doing meth in front of my child. Robert was doing meth with my toddler. And so Shelby called Child Protective Services on Robert. Well, Child Protective Services gave me my child back and placed Shelby with my mother. Their bonds were being tested. The sexual abuse and the trafficking had wreaked havoc on Shelby and in seeking treatment for an untreated STD, which turned out to be chlamydia, Shelby discovered that she was pregnant. Shelby was only 14 and already facing adult decisions. That's how Shelby ended up getting pregnant with my nephew was because Robert prostituted her out to some grown man and Shelby got pregnant. So I don't know at all what all he did put her through. I know if he's putting her through that, there's no telling what all he did put her through. She didn't tell me a whole lot about Robert other than that. About a month later, I ended up getting told that Shelby was being placed in foster care with me. So it wasn't probably two, three hours later that Shelby showed up. I found out later on the reason why Shelby was placed in foster care was because my mom tried ODing again while having custody of Shelby yet again. So... I couldn't protect my sister from seeing that. I couldn't protect my sister from experiencing that. After everything I had done when she was younger, trying to protect her and not let her see mom OD and try to kill herself. Now 
Shelby's 15 and has experienced it for the first time. Well, I tried to put a bubble around Shelby. I tried to protect her from the outside world as much as I could be, as young as I was. So when Shelby was placed in foster care, we found out that she ended up with an STD, I think it was chlamydia, and that's how we ended up finding out that she was pregnant with my nephew, was because she was tested positive for STDs, which she was a virgin when Robert started pimping her out. So we don't know where she got that. We treated it. She got better. My nephew was fine, but Shelby did end up having a major STD that we had to get treated because of what Robert had done to her. The baby's father, an 18-year-old named LeCurt Kwame Fisher, went by the name of Kurt. Curry would face rape charges due to Shelby's age and be sentenced to sexual assault of a child. On May 4, 2011, at 15, Shelby gave birth to a baby boy, Logan Kent, a Taurus, imbuing the values of resilience and determination. And it was love at first sight. Shelby was still trapped in the foster care system and was grappling with the emotions and responsibilities of being a single teenage mother. Overwhelmed by the profound desire to provide a loving and stable family environment that she and Christina had longed for throughout their tumultuous lives, Shelby attempted to run away with Logan in tow. Her desperate quest was driven by the yearning to be the mother and the parent that she and Christina had needed. Shelby had just given birth to my nephew and decided that he wasn't going to be a good mom. She was going to try to place Logan up for adoption, so she found a good family. As a matter of fact, it's the family who he is with now. So she placed him with them, and about a month after placing him with the family, she decided she was going to recant her word and take her son back. Well, because she recanted her word and took her son back, they had nowhere for Logan to be. They had to remove Shelby out of the foster home that I was at. They then placed Shelby into a group children's home in Wichita Falls. At that group children's home, Shelby ran away with my nephew back to Robert's house. The realities of her situation became increasingly clear, and soon Shelby was forced to make an agonizing decision. She recognized that she was not able to give Logan the life that he truly deserved. She could continue the pattern of dysfunction and perpetuate the cycle of abuse into Logan's future, or she could make the ultimate sacrifice and offer Logan something she had never had. A chance at a brighter future, free from the pitfalls of abuse and neglect. In an act of profound sacrifice and love, Shelby chose to give Logan Kent up for adoption, hoping that the decision would provide him with the nurturing and secure future that had eluded her and her sister for so long. At this point, CPS, Child Protective Services, found out. They took Logan away from Shelby and placed him into foster care. So Logan was placed into foster care for quite some time away from Shelby. I think it was probably about 34 months before Shelby then decided, okay, well, I can't take care of him. I'm still in foster care myself. I have now lost my kid. I'm not fit to be his mom. Let me give him up for adoption. Let me get in touch with the family that I originally was going to give him to. So she placed him 
back with the original family. They took custody of him. They have adopted him. They, he has been in that family ever since he was probably two years old. Actually, he was a new, newborn when the first time he was placed there. But when they officially adopted him, he was probably about two years old. That was a battle with Shelby forever. The loving family who would eventually adopt Logan unselfishly allowed Shelby to remain a part of his life, enabling her to watch him grow from a distance. This heartwarming decision would ensure that her child would have the opportunity for a stable and nurturing upbringing, while also allowing Shelby to maintain a connection with her beautiful baby boy. On December 22, 2011, Robert was again arrested on outstanding warrants related to a relationship he had fostered with another 14-year-old girl back in 2006. This arrest was the culmination of an investigation that had been launched by the Brownwood Police Department in September of 2010, prompted by a disclosure made by a juvenile to a counselor. Despite his arrest, the looming question remained, would this finally mark the end of Robert's sexual reign of terror for 17-year-old Christina and 15-year-old Shelby? The answer, as it would unfold, was not quite so definitive. After Shelby left that group children's home, Shelby was placed into another foster care. She was moved from foster care to foster care, foster care. I never really talked to Shelby about what went on in those foster homes or what happened. And every time we tried talking, when I got to talk to her, we tried talking about good things. We didn't sit there and try to dwell on what was going on. Like, I didn't try to ask her anything like that. If she felt like there was something that she needed to tell me, she could just talk to me about whatever it was. On August 9th, 2012, Leslie, Christina, and Shelby's mother passed away at the very young age of 38. Despite still being in foster care, the sisters faced the insurmountable challenge of attending the service and funeral. Children, drowning in the foster care system. Navigating not only a fractured home, but coping with profound grief and loss. Throughout this difficult time, Christina remained the steadfast protector of a younger sister. Limited in her capacity, she remained acutely aware of the dangers Shelby faced. She had bravely shielded Shelby from harm when possible, even while confronting her own experiences of sexual assault within the foster care system. August 9th of 2012, Mama passed away. Shelby got to come down out of the foster home and see Mama when she passed away. I think Shelby, I think she would have been 16 or 17 at this point, right at aging out of foster care. So after Mama passed away, she was then placed with my aunt. And that's when everything started to really turn. That's when she ended up going to Houston and everything. Shelby was a remarkable woman who radiated kindness and beauty. She was a light that could brighten any room. Growing up, Shelby suffered from extreme asthma, and as a result, she found it challenging to maintain a healthy weight. At one point, Shelby's weight had skyrocketed close to 300 pounds. As she began to focus on herself, she began a miraculous transformation that saw her shed more than 180 pounds, despite her battle with asthma. An eternal optimist and a relentless motivator, Shelby proved to be unstoppable in her pursuit of self-improvement and her desire to experience all that life had to offer. In 2012, as Christina turned 18 and aged out of foster care, Robert found himself facing two life prison terms for two counts of child sexual assault, unrelated 
the sexual abuse of Christina and Shelby. Any semblance of a home or family were forever elusive as the two girls continued to search for belonging and roots. It's a tough life that they had. Yeah, it's a very sad, very, very sad, tough life. And Christina, actually, at one point when they were with their mom, the landlord for the home that they were in was molesting her. And, you know, I don't even think that her mom was even aware. I think her mom was kind of in her own world. It's really sad when you become a parent, but you don't have the experience, the knowledge, the tools the, to be a good parent. Nobody ever brings a child into the world thinking, I really want to screw this child's life up. But somewhere along the line, life happens and people succumb to their weaknesses. And, and obviously one of her weaknesses was addiction and depression. And so this is something that really set the girls into a, a downward spiral that for Shelby ended in her demise. For two people who both had addictions in two completely different ways, it was almost like they were living their lives doing their own things and their kids were to kind of taking care of themselves. When their father went to prison during that time when they were just with their mom, their mom was, you know, constantly moving around running from CPS. So the kids were never in a stable, secure environment. They were just constantly moving around. And it's not good for kids when they're young. One of the things that we find with a lot of child abuse is that typically child abuse perpetuates child abuse. And it's very likely that Robert had abuse in his life and that Leslie had abuse in her life. And so subsequently, both of the girls end up being abused. And it's very possible that that abuse could have continued. But it's also possible that it doesn't continue. It's a choice. It's always a choice whether you're going to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. Christina really took on the role of really wanting to protect Shelby. And, you know, I think Shelby probably kept some things from her, thinking she was trying to protect her big sister. She didn't want yeah. her big sister to know because she didn't want her big sister to think she wasn't being a good big sister. You know, I think they were both kind of trying to watch out for each other. I know that even probably around 9 or 10, Christina was mowing lawns. She would go and say, hey, I'll mow your lawn for 20 bucks. It could be like two acres. And she was out there mowing two acres because she wanted to make sure that her and her sister had food and taken care of. And that's just a level of responsibility that a child, they, they should never have the burden of having to be responsible for another human as a kid. No, They were really robbed of their of their childhoods. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Christina really did a good job of having that maturity at that young of an age to think of just beyond herself. Right. You know, and I think that's what makes her who she is today. Right. She has taken a different path than the tumultuous past that she grew up in. She did something different. And one thing that we're going to see with Shelby is that sometimes the hook of the abuse, the fangs of the abuse that you get when you're a child are not easy to shake loose from. It sticks with you. That abuse sticks with you and it impacts your decisions. It impacts your lifestyle. It impacts who you become. 
sometimes it takes something dramatic to snatch you out of that right that trajectory unfortunately she wasn't able to survive that tragedy that could have maybe pulled her out of that lifestyle and maybe showed her a different way you don't know what you don't know and so when you're raised in a certain environment until you experience something else or until you have significant emotional events occur in your life that are contrary to what you're used to it's normal human nature to continue down that same path because it's what you know right so in the absence of something that goes against it that you can see or experience you're going to follow along in that same trajectory unfortunately right and then the other piece of that puzzle is your circle right who's encouraging you to do wrong Who's encouraging you to do right? Who's taking you off that path that they know don't follow this path? This is the wrong path. You know, and sometimes you're not ready for that yet. It's always a personal decision. When you're traveling down that road and you come to those forks of right and wrong, you make a decision. And sometimes you're not ready to make the right decision yet. And I think that Shelby finds herself at those crossroads at one point. I was going to talk about Robert. Robert's a piece of work. And by a piece of work, I mean he's a piece of shit, right? And he molest his own biological daughter and his adoptive daughter. I don't even think he really adopted her. I think that what happened was that because Robert and their mom was still legally married, that his name was put on their birth certificate just naturally. That's going to yeah. happen. So I don't think that he stepped up. You know, I think it was more of a natural, yeah. you know. By default. Right, by yeah. default. And of course, her biological father never stepped up. Right. So, But I wouldn't say that Robert stepped up either. I don't know. There's a relationship there. And yeah, there was abuse, but there was a relationship there that I don't know about. So I can't speak to it. But I do know that he wasn't good for the girls in any right. kind of way. He wasn't. Yeah. And, and he, was a, he was a pervert. He was dysfunctional and despicable, and he was a pedophile. And the abuse, just when I saw the age between him and, and Leslie, I can already tell because she had the baby when she was 18, which means he, she was 17. He obviously had some issues. He had, yeah. he had an addiction. He had some issues for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, And he's in prison right now. Yeah. Where he should be. Where so. he should be. Absolutely. Now, both girls end up getting pregnant young, which is not uncommon in situations where you grow up with sexual abuse for young girls, they both end up pregnant. Christina's son, does she get her son back? She does. That's good. She does. That's really good. Having a kid in the foster care system and then having your kid taken away and put into the foster care system has got to be one of the scariest thoughts. And she really appears to have though she struggled, she really appears to have done very well and to have gone in a very positive yeah. and, you know, very good direction with yeah. her life. And she's actually, she's been with the same person for years before her sister's death and everything. Yeah. And so he's been a really good guy to her and they've, they've got kids together now. And so they all live together. They're married now. And she has a really good support net right now and all of those negative things are no longer a part of her life one thing i could tell instantly about christina when we spoke with christina was that 
when we ask her about her childhood, there's so many negative things that she could have been like, oh, there was this and there was that. But she starts off by saying, man, I have nothing but the greatest memories of my sister. And we had the most exciting moments and nothing but positive things to say about the darkness that she came from. But, you know, and I think part of that is that one, she's a mom now. So I think she can sympathize with the fact that being a parent is not easy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, by all means, everybody figures that out when they become parents. And so I think that that kind of put her in a certain mindset. But also I think because she had good positive memories prior to the bad ones, I think she realized that her mom went down a wrong path. Yeah. And so I think it allowed for her to have some some compassion and some empathy with her mom. Not that she was saying that the things her mom did were right, but that she recognized that not everything was bad and that there was a turning point for her mom for whatever reason. And she probably doesn't even know what that is. Right, right. No, absolutely. And it's funny because when you're a kid, you just blame your parents for everything that goes wrong. <laughs> every bad experience is your mom and dad's fault. And and it's really easy to get caught up on my dad was this, or my mom was that, and they never did this and they never did that. And not realize that parenting is not easy. You don't get the instructions when you have the baby. You don't leave the hospital with this how to book on how to raise the perfect child. You have to go based off of, your experiences and your exposures and, you know, what you've learned from your own parents. And you try to put all of that together and do the best that you can. And you really realize that once you have your own kid. Right. That's true. What's your thoughts on Shelby's selfless act of giving her son up for adoption? I personally think that that is the hardest thing that you can possibly do. I think it's much easier to go get an abortion because you don't have to worry about who your child's with, what your child's doing, if your child's going to be upset with you for the decision that you made, if they're going to understand, not understand. And so I believe that that is honestly just the most selfless thing that you can possibly do as a parent when you know that you are not equipped at that point in time to be the parent that that child deserves. And I know that that was hard for her. That's something that Christina talked about. I believe that was a large part of her depression through the years, even up until the point where she was murdered. That was rough for her because there's a piece of her somewhere that she wants to be with her, but she knows that she's not in a place to provide her son what he truly deserves. And she recognizes that. And that takes a lot. I've seen a couple different things that have one on Shelby's page. So Shelby still has an active Facebook page in going through her page. It's kind of interesting to kind of see how she kind of transforms throughout the years and how things change in her life. But she had commented at one point about, you know, cause as you get older and you start self-reflecting and looking at your situation and you start realizing things. And she was talking about her son and talking about getting pregnant at a young age. Well, the guy who got her pregnant was an adult and this was during the time where her father, Robert, was was trafficking her. And obviously she's a child. She's not at an age where she can legally consent, even if she wanted to. And so this guy got put in prison for an 18-year sentence. And the reason is because he was considered a legal adult. 
And due to how young she was, she was considered a child. And so it was considered rape of a child because a child cannot consent. Right. That's why it's not statutory rape. Right. And so here she is doing some self-work and some self-reflection and trying to navigate her way through this life that she's had, which nobody but her is going to understand. And the mother of this guy makes a comment saying, you know, like basically saying like you weren't a virgin and, you know, you had him put away and it was consensual. A child cannot consent. (laughs) Right. To even fix yourself to say that, like a child cannot consent. I don't care what (laughs) you think about the child. I don't care what kind of lifestyle you think the child had. And I understand when you have a parent on the other side where they say, oh, my son was just 18 or, oh, my son, you know, maybe she lied about her age or maybe, you know, well, this is where we got to do a better job (laughs) at teaching our kids that when you become a legal adult and you're making adult decisions, you get adult repercussions. That's true. So you can't then go back and say, oh, but... That's a scary truth, and I don't feel like we always prepare our children at that age to inherit those responsibilities of decision-making. And it's really easy to make a bad decision and end up in a bad situation. And I'm sure this parent is hurt because their kid, who was 18, is gone until they're 36. Like, like that's a painful thing, especially when it was based off of a bad decision. I don't know that it was malicious. I don't know that it was intentional. I don't know if they had a relationship together before, you know, when she got pregnant. I don't know any of those things. At 18, you are making decisions. And if you made the bad decision, the consequences are what they are. Let's talk about Shelby's weight loss. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of weight. That's pretty significant. And if you think about how much weight she would have had to lose, so 180 pounds in, let's say, a year and a half about 10 pounds a month, you can do that if you stay aggressive, if you're consistent with your eating habits and your workout habits. And even more significant, the fact that not only was it a lot of weight and it really required for her to be very consistent and stay motivated is that she has asthma. Right. And having asthma and doing strenuous exercise is a lot. Like I've had this crazy cough for, I don't know, like six years now or something crazy I think having to do with something from the military, I don't know. But I noticed that the more cardio I do, the more I cough. And it's super annoying. And now with COVID, especially when COVID first first hit, you know, people look at you crazy. But it makes it difficult. So I commend her for what she had to do to make that happen. And something that's absolutely beautiful about that is that getting in the gym and working out creates oxytocin, which is a feel-good hormone in your body. And it has the equivalent of working in your body like a mental health drug does. And so I'm sure that as she started seeing these milestones of progress on top of that oxytocin, it really was even more and more motivating for her that she was making a positive change, that she was setting a goal and she was able to achieve it. And she went from being highly depressed and hating her body 
to loving her body and aspiring to be a model. Wow. So pretty significant. Yeah, I think that's a huge transformation. And sometimes, sometimes transformations begin on the outside first. Right. And I feel like if she would have had more time, she, she was murdered when she was 20. If she would have had more time, more time to evolve, more time to mature, more time to learn the impact of the decisions that she was making in the lifestyle that she was living, I feel like there was some additional transformation that was coming. Absolutely. Because I see her drive. And in, and even though I see her saying some things like that, I see like my niece is saying, or like when my kids were young, like kind of how they would talk. Um, she's still growing up. She's still yeah. maturing. But... I see her drive. I see her motivation. I see I see how she is with her family, how loyal she is, how loving she is, how she stays connected, how she, you know, she's posting about her nieces and nephews and saying she can't wait to see them and posting pictures of when she gets to hang out with them and talking right. about what a great time she had. She wasn't this crazy off the wall going down the wrong path person. Right. I believe that she was in a journey to transformation in her life. I agree with that. So Leslie, Leslie passes away at a young age, 38. And I'm not sure of what. I don't know if it was drugs, if it was another overdose. It very well could have been. I'm not sure why, but definitely of a young age. And drugs, I know that she was addicted to pills. I don't know if she was addicted to anything stronger than that. But um, some drugs can really have some pretty heavy impacts on your cardiovascular system yeah. and can cause you to die at a young age, unfortunately. Yeah. And it kind of makes me wonder what demons she carried and what abuse did she, was she exposed to from Robert? Because Robert was extremely abusive. I believe she was probably abused by Robert more than just physically. I think she was probably sexually abused, physically abused, yeah. emotionally, psychologically, financially. I think yeah. she probably experienced all abuse methods from him. And I'm pretty sure that that played a large role in how she felt. Yeah, I'm sure. So Robert, while raping me, he was messing with several of my friends, but he was actually in a relationship with a girl named Veronica. Him and her would always go out together, go out to eat. He would pick her up from school. He would do this and he would do that. That's what he actually got charged on, was her. Not on me. In 2014, as Shelby began transitioning out of the foster care system, eager and anxious to explore life on her own, she enrolled in a course to become a certified nurse's aide or a CNA looking to create a life that she had dreamed about. Shelby received some unexpected news. She was pregnant again. Shelby had done been arrested for prostitution. She come back and was with my aunt for a little while. And that's when she found out she was pregnant. And I was down there visiting at this point. Shelby had a doctor's appointment. She should have been 12 weeks along, but the baby was still measuring at eight weeks and had a very faint heartbeat. The doctor told her that the baby was not going to survive probably even another day. It wasn't measuring where it should be, that they were going to have to take the baby. So they done a DNC on her and took the baby. 
Unfortunately, her journey into motherhood was fraught with challenges. And on March 21st, 2014, at just 12 weeks into her pregnancy, Shelby underwent a heartbreaking ultrasound that revealed her baby's fragile health with a faint heartbeat and stunted growth. She was forced to undergo surgery and a dilation and curatage or a DNC procedure at Hamilton Hospital in Hamilton, Texas. And sadly, her baby girl, whom she had planned to name Sabrina Nicole Reese, passed away at 6.01 p.m. The damage from Robert's sexual abuse of Shelby left indelible scars on Shelby's psyche. The first time she got arrested, she was with some girl and they claimed that she was the one doing it, not Shelby. It was just Shelby in the wrong spot at the wrong time. That's why Shelby got arrested. Weeks after the loss of her unborn daughter, Shelby found herself in the crosshairs of the law. Wrong place at the wrong time. Place Shelby alongside 23-year-old Miranda Cedillo. Shelby was arrested at the Studio 6 Motel in Grand Prairie, Texas, on charges of solicitation of sex for a fee after interacting with an undercover police officer. Miranda had been under investigation, and Shelby was caught in the crossfire. When police looked into Shelby and why she was at the Motel 6, they discovered a Backpage ad with photos of Shelby under the name Mariah. Backpage was an online platform that, among other things, allowed sex workers to offer sexual services for money quite easily. The arrest marked beginning of a tumultuous period in Shelby's life, marked by tumultuous relationships and encounters teetering between her past with sexual abuse and trafficking and the future that she desired. This path eventually led her to Marcus or Mark D. Dwayne Johnson, who would become her pimp. Shelby told me that she was just the wrong place at the wrong time. I knew Later on, after she got arrested, that she ended up having a back page. After she was arrested, she met a guy. She moved in with him. They ended up breaking up. He was very sweet. He was very kind, very nice. They ended up breaking up. She met another guy who had a kid. It was some other guy after she broke up with the first one. After him is when she met Mark, or in the process of somewhere in there is when she met Mark, is how she got caught up with him. In social circles, she would pass him off as her boyfriend. Shelby's secret life of sex work was a means to an end for the blossoming beauty who had worked hard to become a vixen in her own right. I met him after Shelby had done been arrested with him. But what am I supposed to do? Like, at 19, 20 years old, I can't physically force her to get in my car and come home with me. She was with Mark probably almost a year before she got killed. She played it off as they were just boyfriend and girlfriend. He would take her out on dates. She's went to Hollywood. I mean, she's been to places that I've never been. They've been to Hollywood. They've been somewhere east to the beach. I mean, the list goes on and on. He would take her places when they first got together. So it did make you look and think that it was a regular relationship. To her family and most of her friends, Shelby appeared to be living a life of luxury, whisked away by her seemingly charming 
Prince, Mark D., who lavished her with fine dining and globe-trotting adventures, a world of opulence that neither Shelby nor Christina had ever experienced before. However, unbeknownst to them, Shelby's travels were often to well-known escort hotspots, including Las Vegas, Nevada, the East Coast beaches, concert venues, and sporting events. In reality, Shelby and her pimp were on a relentless pursuit of wealth. Shelby served as both the primary source of income and as the mastermind behind recruiting, training, and managing new talent in their operation. Then all of a sudden one day, I get a call, and this is before she moved to the high-rise apartment. I don't know why she moved out of this other apartment. I liked it a lot better. It was a gated community. You actually had to have a code to get into the community. You, you couldn't just walk up in there. The whole apartment was surrounded by gates. So I liked the first apartment that she lived in. However, the second apartment, you could just pretty much walk into the building any time of the day until 8 o'clock at night. That first apartment is where I met Mark. On July 3rd, 2014, at just 18 years old, Shelby moved into a secure and safe gated community. But the couple didn't stay there long. She made the decision to move again in less than a year, a choice influenced by Mark D's guidance. This decision, while unsettling for her older sister, Christina, was made in pursuit of temporary financial gains to afford plastic surgery to address some of the unsightly excess skin, a result of her rapid weight loss. And he kept her there. It was probably a month after she got out of jail before she moved to the high-rise apartment. Shelby was considered the bottom pitch. So what that is, is the person who trains all the other girls. Anybody that he takes under their wings and says, you're going to work for me, Shelby trains them. I've talked to numerous amount of girls that have worked with Shelby and have worked with him and I know his aggression I know how he is I've seen his aggression on Shelby he's had other girls and he's even admitted it to the cops despite the apparent allure of the lifestyle many individuals sought ways to escape as they grappled with Mark D's aggressive management of their resources and the inherent risks and pressures of the fast-paced and provocative world they were a part of a life they desperately wanted to leave behind. Most of the girls that Shelby worked with, they weren't there very long. They found a way to get out and just take off. Christina, despite her reservations, remained supportive of her sister's aspirations for financial stability. At only 19 years old, Shelby was making moves and putting together a life that from the outside appeared to be shiny and golden but everything underneath was rotten and spoiled. Shelby would relocate to the Conquistador Apartments, a high-rise complex in the middle of Houston, Texas, specifically to the third floor, apartment 3B. At 20 years old, the young and stunning Shelby appeared to be a success story. She was traveling the world. She wore fancy high-end clothing and jewelry. She was living in a posh high-rise apartment. She managed three phones, with Mark D. handling all the front office tasks such as customer service, scheduling, and security. 
Christina would later learn that Mark D handled the client interactions and that Shelby didn't do in-calls, a term used in the escort business to indicate that a girl accepted clients at her home. This would later come into question as Christina would wonder if this were the reason why the couple moved from the gated security of their initial high rise to the less secure accommodations of the Conquistador apartments which allowed free reign access. Christina would ask if the decision was driven by the need for better clientele accessibility. Something that I find interesting is that Shelby had started going to school to be a nurse's aide, and then she found herself pregnant. And I know that for this to be a second pregnancy, she's not going to want to give another child up for adoption. At this point in time, she was with somebody else. She was dating somebody else. Things seem to be going well for her. I'm pretty sure that there was some financial pressure there. And then she has this miscarriage, which was a big deal. I think that somewhere in there, it kind of pushed her to the wanting the financial stability and wanting to level up and wanting to have a better lifestyle than just being a CNA. And so I think she looked at it as a, hey, I can make good money doing this. And she proceeded to move towards that lifestyle. Yeah. Also, the fact that she ends up getting caught with Miranda, I think, is a big indicator of her circle at the time. And I think that might have been what caused her to decide that that particular route was acceptable. Because if she already saw someone who was successful, someone who was getting money, someone who was doing well, and she's like, hey, girl, I'm just going to show you the ropes. Here's a 23-year-old girl who's doing her thing, who's probably living on her own, has her own car. Well, guess what? Shelby wants that too. A lot of people look at this lifestyle and they say, ooh, these girls are all nasty. They have diseases. They're doing all these nasty things. The truth about that lifestyle is that there are girls who make a lot of money doing it. There are girls who, they don't get diseases. They stay protected. And they don't look at sex the way a lot of women or and some men look look at sex. And so they look at it as a job. They protect themselves. And a lot of women don't deal with abuse and drugs and all those other things. It's not something they plan on doing permanently, but it's a means to elevating themselves to a different environment. Like a lot of women don't do it as a permanent means. Then you have some girls who get into it and they dislike the lifestyle. They get into drugs. And then you have some girls that just, they get beat, they get abused, they get a pimp. And they end up in this kind of this circle of bad handlings and bad decisions and and then they just never make it out of the life. There is a huge stigma around sex workers, but you can't knock the hustle of somebody else. Right. Whatever someone chooses to do for themselves is one thing. I think where it becomes kind of a gray area is when now you're being trafficked by somebody else and you're being pushed into a lifestyle that you don't want or that you want to leave, but you can't. Right. That's where the issue becomes. Yeah, there's a moral and there's a, you know, societal shun of sex workers. But the reality is, is that it's the oldest profession. And in some countries, it's completely legal. Actually, in Las Vegas, it's legal. Prostitution is legal. No one looks at it as a bad thing because it's regulated. Unfortunately, like everything else that's not regulated and that's illegal, 
it's looked at as bad. Weed used to be looked at like cocaine, and now weed is legal for recreational use in, in certain states. Right. So sometimes the stigma comes from the legal application in society it makes it a bad thing. But I think that in the case of Shelby, you have to understand what got her from point A to point B. This isn't a girl who was doing great and going to college and had all the opportunities in life and made a decision that she just wants to make fast money. This is a girl who was systematically broken and abused sexually for years, pimped out by her adoptive father. This is a girl who knows this lifestyle, has been involved in this, has been abused. This is right. something that she's kind of evolved into. And it's not something that, given a different past, that maybe she would have chosen for herself. And there is an element there where for somebody who's in Shelby's position, and I can see in a lot of her Facebook posts how she talks, where she's overly, like when you can tell that somebody isn't extremely confident, but they're going overboard with it to make it appear like they're extremely confident. I kind of feel like that's where Shelby was at in the way that she was speaking. And she definitely was the perfect type of person with the perfect type of lifestyle to have been groomed. So when Shelby's sister speaks about Mark D being a reason as to why maybe Shelby split off into that lifestyle, that could be a possibility. But we do know that she was already kind of dipping her feet in prior to even meeting Mark D. Now, I don't know if she maybe knew Mark D at that time. That could be. We don't know that. So there's a little bit of, of a mixture there. There could have been some grooming elements there. And then the fact that she was already used to a certain lifestyle growing up. And she's not going to look at sex the same way that somebody is who grew up in a normal household and didn't have sex until they were 16, 17, 18. Her perspective is going to be very different. There's also another way to look at it as well. Sometimes women will choose this lifestyle and need someone to provide them that level of security. And so it's also a possibility that the idea could have been Shelby's and she could have said, hey, Mark D, I want you to do these things for me in order to make sure that I stay safe and in order to help me manage this business that I need someone to do these things. And as a result, I'm going to bring in more girls. I'm going to share the wealth with you. It could have been a complete business transaction. Right. It could have potentially been not something where he was putting her out on the street, but she was choosing to be there. And it was a collaborative Right. And honestly, and that's kind of how it appeared. And when a lot of the different girls were talked to by Shelby's sister and various other individuals who have interviewed some of the different girls in the background, nobody wanted to be put out publicly. They didn't want their name to be put out publicly and rightfully so. They spoke about how Shelby was considered the bottom girl, which I know sounds very derogatory, but in that lifestyle, the bottom girl is like the top girl. She's the girl with the experience. She's the girl recruiting the talent she's the girl training the talent she's the girl boss who's ensuring that y'all are making money and typically is your top earner that's who Shelby was so Shelby was an important piece of that financial empire we brought up in calls when escorts are working they will advertise as doing in calls or out calls out calls are where they go to you a lot of them will only do certain places because of safety. So like, for instance, they don't want to go to some random guy's house in the middle of nowhere. 
And then with in-calls, a lot of girls will do in-calls at hotels because they don't want you coming to their personal residence. They don't want you knowing where they live, so you can't stalk them. It's very rare for an escort to allow somebody to come to their residence. And that's something that stuck out to me about Shelby's case is that that's not very common for escorts to allow these guys, especially guys that they've never dealt with before, you know, maybe if it was a regular client of hers, nah, I could see an exception. But for this to be somebody that she had never communicated with before, didn't know anything about, in calls are very dangerous. Just like going to somebody's house in the middle of nowhere is dangerous as well. That to me kind of stood out. But it does make me wonder if when Christina would ask later, was this maybe why she moved? It very well could be because nobody's going to come to you when they have to get through gated access and you got to let them like that's a lot of stuff for them to do so by moving somewhere where she didn't have a gated community and they're able to just kind of come and go with nobody really paying attention kind of like a hotel it makes more sense 20 year old shelby appeared to be making strides towards achieving her goals she had just placed a deposit of a thousand dollars for the cosmetic tummy tuck surgery that she was working so hard for it was a procedure that she had been eagerly anticipating and looking forward to, to removing the excess skin that had resulted from her rapid weight loss. It would be symbolic of excising an old part of her and embracing the new Shelby. On November 4th, that day, Shelby had decided she was going to go and put a uh, down payment and deposit on having some plastic surgery done. She had put over $1,000 down when she got home. And this is how I know that she lived in the apartment because... All of her personal belongings was there. Her social security card, her ID, her birth certificate, all of her personal belongings was in that apartment. All of her personal effects, her clothes and stuff was in the bedroom. She used the living room for her space. November 4th, Shelby went and put money down on plastic surgery. She come home put the paper down on the counter. Matter of fact, when I got there, that's where the paper was still sitting. The paper was sitting on the counter. She just went on about her day. Not sure if she had anything else going on that day. On Wednesday, November 4th, 2015, as the temperatures began sliding below 50 degrees in Houston, Shelby had a brief conversation with her aunt, Tawny Kelly, before getting ready to meet with an expected client. She informed her aunt that she had to go and they exchanged endearments. Tawny was unaware that this would be their last communication. That night, my aunt had talked to her for a split second. She couldn't talk for very long. She told her that she had to go, that she talked to her later. At 8.06 p.m., Shelby received a text message from someone stating that they would arrive in 20 minutes. This was typical banter between a sex worker and a client as they worked the logistics of the meet. She responded with a simple okay. There is no indication that this was a regular client one she had seen before. By 8.33 p.m., Shelby received another message saying, Hey, I'm here. Shortly after 8.34 p.m., a man wearing light-colored attire, including a long sleeve shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes, was seen on the CCTV footage entering the building. He appeared to be engrossed in his phone. He had to wait for a tenant to allow him access to the elevator due to the late hour. At 8.40 p.m., a text message from Selby's phone was sent reading G-U-D to Mark D, which stood for good, which Mark D would later tell authorities was their code for the payment was received and everything is in order. 
The mysterious man was captured on CCTV again as he left the building, this time wearing sunglasses. His left hand firmly in his pocket. 22 minutes had elapsed from the time of his arrival to the apartment to the time of his departure. In a horrifying and ruthless act, the six-foot, unidentified, middle-aged white male, who detectives estimate weighing around 180 to 200 pounds, violently and sadistically took Shelby's promising life in a brutal and malicious manner. The murder weapon, a pointed and surgical sharp knife, leaving a fatal wound approximately five and a half inches in length across the bottom of Shelby's unprotected throat. During the autopsy, the medical examiner would identify the deadly trajectory to begin from left to the right side of Shelby's neck, making the assailant right-handed. The knife would first pierce her skin near the left sternocleidomastoid muscle close to her clavicle bone. With a steady and forceful and relentless motion, the blade moved left to right, completely severing the left sternocleidomastoid muscle near her sternum. The blade continued its gruesome journey, slicing through the left jugular vein and puncturing the left carotid artery. The traveling sweep would move to sever the left and right sternothyroid and sternohyoid muscles, followed by the trachea and esophagus. The motion remained fluid and unbroken as it severed the right sternocleidomastoid and omohyoid muscles, mirroring the same devastation on the right side in the opposite order. The blade then exacted a similar punishment on the right vertebral and carotid arteries as well as the right jugular vein. It pierced through soft tissue, ultimately reaching the C3 through C5 vertebral bodies with an estimated depth of approximately 2.5 inches. This was a wound devoid of any hint of remorse or hesitation, and it was 100% fatal. Notably, the level of force required to stab a neck typically exceeds a staggering 1,000 pounds of pressure. In this case, the assailant targeted zone one of the neck, the base, known for its lethality. The force applied to the first artery caused blood to splatter, spraying from the left side of Shelby's neck onto the adjacent surrounding area, in this instance, the wall. The precision and brutality of this attack are beyond the scope of typical self-defense knife training, suggesting a level of expertise and ruthlessness that is deeply, deeply unsettling. This type of wound is a hallmark of specialized training, typically reserved for special ops and elite U.S. and foreign military personnel and other special operators. It requires a level of precision, anatomical knowledge, and technique that goes far beyond what is typically covered in standard self-defense knife training courses. The fact that the assailant executed such a precise and lethal attack underscores the possibility of a highly trained individual being responsible for this crime. It's a critical detail that investigators would likely consider as they work to identify and apprehend this perpetrator. So 4 a.m. on November 5th, I was actually asleep in the bed. My phone rang and I normally would not answer any numbers that are not stored into my phone so this number showed up as a houston number and shelby had already been arrested twice for prostitution i was afraid that it was going to happen again so i answered the call since it did show up as a houston number and unfortunately this time it wasn't shelby on the other end calling from jail saying hey sister i need your help it was another woman saying my sister had been killed. And I had asked her several times, 
I said, so you're meaning to tell me that my sister was murdered? And she kept telling me, no, I can't tell you that your sister was murdered. The only thing I can tell you is that your sister has passed away. So after sitting there going around and around and around about Shelby being killed, Colin gave up so I can get the rest of the information that I needed. They then tell me that Shelby's body was at a morgue and they were proceeding to do an autopsy on her. They gave me the number for the morgue. They gave me the number for the detective. At this point, it's 4.30 in the morning. So after I get off the phone with them, I call my husband. I tell him what's going on. He wants to come home, and I tell him, no, stay at work, stay at work. There's nothing you can do. I can't even do anything for her. I can't even go see her. After I get off the phone with him, I go wake up with my dad, and I tell him that Shelby could be killed. And my dad isn't Robert. This is a man that took care of me after Robert. And I call my aunt, and I call my cousins, and I tell everybody, and Shelby, Shelby had been killed. That was the worst. Not realizing that it wasn't Shelby on the other end. Instead, it was about Shelby. After trying to protect her my whole life, I finally failed. I failed at protecting her. And I failed at saving her. Nine days later, I traveled to Houston. Finally, they finished the autopsy on her. I traveled to Houston. And the next day, I go to see Shelby. I get there. The funeral home director pulls me off to the side and proceeds to tell me everything that was going on. Shelby's cut on her throat was so deep that it about took her head off. They had to end up sewing her head pretty much back on. And they used cooking twine to sew her neck back together. He told me that she had a cut on her wrist like she put up for self-defense and asked me if I wanted to go see her before I allowed anybody else in there. So I went in there to see her and me and Shelby had a conversation. I promised Shelby that I would never... I promised Shelby I would never stop fighting until he was caught. I was still in denial that Shelby was actually dead, even though she was laying on the table right in front of me. And the only thing I could see was her head because everything was wrapped up. They had to wrap her up in order to keep her cool because we didn't have the money to have her involved. They had to also wrap her up to help keep her head still. Because when I went down to touch her head, to kiss her forehead, her head over. It wasn't there. It was just sitting there. 
stop so miss her, I would fight and fight until we found him. The next day, I got permission to go to her apartment and clean out her apartment. Not knowing it was going to be a bloody mess up there. When I walked in, it didn't seem like it was nothing. When you first walk in, it's just a hall. And then immediately to the left is was the kitchen. You walk past the kitchen. You walk past a little archway attached to the kitchen. And then you see it. You walk into blood all over the floor, blood all over the bed, all over the wall, all over the couch, maggots crawling everywhere. When you first walk in, of course, you don't see nothing, but you smell it. You smell it. The smell is awful. It's horrible. So you know something happened there. They didn't clean it. I couldn't get everything out of her apartment. I couldn't clean her apartment until I, until I cleaned up her bed. I couldn't be in there and see the blood on the wall, the blood on the floor, the mattress. I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep taking things in and out of that apartment. And seeing and thinking about how Shelby's body was laying there. How was she? Because at this point, I didn't know. I didn't know anything. So in my mind, I'm sitting there. In my mind, I'm sitting there wondering, how was she? How was she found? How did he kill her? Because I didn't know any of this information. This was a very brutal attack and if you don't know much about traumatic injuries you may think oh this could be anybody this could have been a hit placed no not so much you could say oh this could be somebody with hunting experience who's used to hunting and cutting open their meat no it can't so the way that Shelby was murdered is very unique. The amount of pressure that was required and the precision that was required for how this man cut through her neck is beyond your typical individual, beyond your typical trained knife individual. Believe it or not, the mortality rate for a slice to the neck isn't as high as you would think. In some instances, it can be up to 60%, but even that isn't that common. The reason is because typically when somebody gets into a fight or when somebody tries to kill somebody, people don't go around cutting people's necks. So they'll catch them in a certain area or they'll, you know, they'll do it in the middle of their neck or the side of their neck and they only slice one area of the neck. And so trauma surgeons are used to saving people's lives. Some people who have been cut from ear to ear, just not that deep. So this type of attack is not normal. This is not a typical individual. This really narrows the pool of people 
who could have done this. And so this is one of the reasons that this case was elevated to the level that it was elevated to. And I've heard some people throw around some scenarios. So the boyfriend, so Mark D, the pimp, was there some type of scuffle between the two or was he jealous and did he do it? Well, he has a solid alibi. He's sat down with detectives at least three times since Shelby's murder, and they have completely cleared him based on his alibi and any other witnesses that they've talked to and evidence that, that they've been able to collect. So we're going to go ahead and push him off to the side for now. Another thing that's been said is that possibly this was a hit. Now, there isn't a store that you can go to and say, hey, I need me a hitman, like you see on TV, um, who has all these skills and he's not going to go tell anybody that you tried to hire him to be a hitman. That place doesn't exist. And for you to be in, in that type of crowd, you're connected to some very sneaky, very high level individuals like a international criminal organization. And I don't think that was the case in this situation. Or the opposite, you're you're hiring somebody off the street and paying them a thousand dollars to go kill somebody. You're not going to get tactical. You're going to get sloppy, right? So, I want for you guys to just think for a moment about this attack on Shelby, and I want you to think about the fact we know for sure that he was behind her. I want you to think about standing behind somebody. And what your movement would be cutting somebody's neck. You're not going to go for the base of the neck. You're going to go for whatever area it is that you're closest to. You know, you might try to hold the person. Just think of these different things. This person's precision with the area that they started and ended. And there was no hesitation. There was no lift. Sometimes what you'll see when somebody is cut in a manner like that, you'll see where the blade comes up and then back down. That wasn't seen. You'll see jagged edges where there's been movement. So this was a very instantaneous, the knife went in, he pulled it to the right and took the knife out. And it was quick. And I've also heard a few people say that the blood that was on the wall is cast off and it is not it actually is not cast off so cast off occurs when the blades removed the blood that's on the blade flings off the blade onto the wall and it's in a pattern you'll see a pattern whether it's a round pattern or a straight pattern you'll see a pattern what occurred in Shelby's case is that the pressure when you cut into that first artery causes the blood to spurt out And so the blood that you see on the wall, there is no cast off on the wall. And if there was going to be cast off, the only way that there would have been cast off is if he would have pulled the weapon out very abruptly, or if when he came out, when he was done, if he pulled it away abruptly. And in that situation, it would have flung against a different wall um, or a different area, and it didn't. So... This couldn't have been a typical person. This is somebody who had some very specific training and you can go Google any knife training and I'm going to tell you that you're not going to find a knife training school, a regular knife training school where you can go learn this tactic. This is something that is trained specifically for people who go to war and are embedded with different groups where the likelihood of them facing somebody where they're going to need to use a knife and need to kill somebody immediate without any sound and it, for it to be very abrupt. Those are the types of people that receive that training. 
Uh, typically, a knife training that, that you're going to get as, as a civilian, and typically even with law enforcement, because I've participated in this type of training, so I'm, I'm familiar with it, it's self-defense. Right. This is an offense strike. This is a stealth move. Right. Where it's to keep people quiet. You come up behind someone, you cover their mouth, you cut their throat, you put them on the ground. You move them out of the way so that you can keep moving forward. This is not what they teach in self-defense. Right. And so I want you to think about the fact he showed up there to have sexual intercourse with her. And so they're both naked. He's behind her. She's not even going to think twice until she sees the knife. And so he's going to have to use his left arm and hand to hold her in some way to control her body. And then the right hand is the hand because we've determined that the wound started from the left and moved to the right. So saying that he's either right-handed or he's ambidextrous, one or the other. And so something that's interesting to me, so she has a defensive wound on her hand and on her shoulder. And I believe that was from her trying to pull his hand away, whichever hand was trying to secure her. And I think in that moment, so I, I've been watching this video over and over with his left hand in his pocket. And I'm thinking, how could he have gotten that injury? Would she have scratched him? No, they should have been able to pull skin from under her nails unless he cleaned under her nails. And so I'm thinking about what could have occurred. And something tells me that she bit him. Something tells me that he was had his hand over her face and was pulling her head back. And when she saw the knife and she tried to take a defensive stance that whatever she did loosened his hand up just enough over her mouth to where she was able to bite him. But because his precision, and again, there was no hesitation, there was no jaggedness in the cut, there was no up and down movement of the knife, it was very fast. But I think she could have quite possibly have bitten him. She had what appeared to be a little bit of a busted lip. And that even more so fits with the scenario that he had his hand over her mouth and that when she went to bite that she could have busted her lip or he busted her lip in the pressure that he was trying to use to, to push her, her lips against her, her mouth. It's 4 a.m. on November 5th, 2015, and you receive that chilling call informing you that your 20-year-old sister Shelby has been brutally taken from this world. Christina Thornburg, Shelby's big sister, will forever carry the weight of that moment. What's even more harrowing is that justice has eluded Shelby thus far. Her killer, suspected to be a serial murderer, remains at large, possibly lurking in the shadows, preying on other women as he did with Shelby. The chilling part, this murderer left behind no fingerprints, only a few strands of hair that to this day have failed to yield a match in CODIS, the DNA database. Shelby's killer wasn't a typical perpetrator. There was no love gone wrong, no passion-fueled crime. This was a cold, calculated act executed with frightening precision and a level of meticulousness rarely seen. The question is, who is this monster that might be hiding in plain sight? Can anyone recognize the telltale signs, the hesitant gait, the unassuming dad bod, the choice of tennis shoes, the eerie way that he moves? 
I tell people it gets easier to talk about, but then there's days like today I was not expecting to even cry. The last interview I had, I was able to talk about Shelby. So there's still days that it hurts, but most days it's easier to talk about her than not. Since day one, they believe it was a serial killer. So they've told me that since the day one. I believe Mark had something to do with it. So I was in denial that it could possibly be a serial killer that just was out for random sex crimes or whatever he was out for. So they have, the detectives since day one has said that they believe this was an act of a serial killer. They found the hairs on Shelby's back and it was several, but they found one hair that they felt was very strong, very dominant, that it was her killer's hair. The other hair that they have found was a unknown female hair on her body. And remind you, Shelby had just gotten a shower that afternoon, right around 8 o'clock, because that's what she had done. She had just got out of the shower when my aunt talked to her. She had just got out of the shower and was getting ready. There would have been no hair, random hairs, on Shelby. So that female hair had to have come from film as well. Our guest now, and they have been denied on processing the female hair before, is that this hair could be, say, his wife or his kid. It could be a direct line to him. They're trying to get the hair processed by DPS CODIS, and his exact words are, we're waiting on some people in Austin. It's ironic that you texted me because Dustin has been in contact with DPS CODIS Labs in the FBI about the case this week about having evidence further tested. I said, evidence tested. Why? I said, a hit? He said, no, there is no hit yet. We want to go further down the line in the female line of genealogy from the hair strands. Dustin is dealing with all of it, and we're hoping that we get the DPS or FBI to approve the test. So they did do a lot of swabs and um, the things that they swabbed were they did a vaginal swab, they did an anal swab, they did an oral swab, and I'm not sure what testing they've done on that oral swab. I actually want to ask the detective that. They did some tape lifts, and so basically what they do for a tape lift, and typically tape lifts, unless you have to do them, are considered to be not as good as utilizing the swabs, but sometimes the material kind of requires it. Like if if you're lifting something from a car seat that's not leather, tape is going to probably work better. But they did do tape lifts as well on her body, um, on different areas within her apartment. And so they collected a number of things. And of the hairs that were on her back, I know that her sister had told us that there was three. I think there might have only been two. But regardless, I know that one of the hairs they said was dominant and it was dark, believed to be the killer's. And they have already run that and that is sitting in CODIS and it has not had a hit. And then there's another hair that right now they're waiting for FBI approval to test that hair. And that hair is a female hair that is not Shelby's. 
And now something to know about this collection is that Shelby had just showered, had just gotten out of the shower when this guy got there. So unless she happened to pick something up from the bed sheets, which she could have, this is all going to be very important what was obtained from her body. I don't know if they attempted to get any evidence from her shower. Now we've requested all of the records that we possibly can. Um, This is considered an open case, so they're not going to release everything. But I am curious to know if they attempted to try to pull anything out of her shower in the drain, hair, or anything. Because even though he was nude, he would have gotten some blood on him and he would have had to clean it off. And where did he clean that off at? He was very precise as well in his time. You know, he would have had to have undressed, did what he did, cleaned up, and then left and left in a manner that didn't leave any fingerprints or anything of that nature. There are some things to know specifically about Houston, and Houston does have a forensics lab here, um, but it's not like a lot of the labs in a lot of the big cities. And every state has different requirements, collection requirements, and then requirements for processing. Houston is very behind on their processing of DNA evidence as a whole. So when I looked at their numbers, they had some stuff, and the way that they counted is they, they categorize it based on the type of processing that's due and then it's listed if it's been more than 30 days since the request and there is like hundreds and hundreds um so they're backed up there's some hope in the sense that you know they are trying to get approval for this other hair to see if maybe that can hit and maybe that can be the killer's daughter the killer's spouse something of that nature um that can tie another way of of trying to find this guy what's the significance of the fbi having the case So VICAP is a program through the FBI that has to do with violent crimes. And there are very violent crimes and then um, very serious sexual assaults. And there's, for certain cases, if they meet certain criteria, then it can be escalated to the FBI. And basically it sits in an area where, as other law enforcement agencies submit data, you can see if there's data that, that aligns, that matches up so that you can see, okay, now in Utah, they have a case that's very similar to this case. And so it allows for the detectives to try to communicate from state to state. This is not a requirement for law enforcement agencies to do this. And there are times where the FBI can sometimes find things. They do have analysts who look for cases and cases that meet criteria. They try to input it into the system or have it input into the system, but that's not going to be your commonality. So I think that the Houston Police Department did a good thing by submitting this to VICAP, and I think it's great that it met the criteria and that VICAP picked it up. They do believe that it's a serial killer and a very meticulous serial killer at that. So there's a serial killer out there who hasn't been caught. Could this be a prior military person? Very high possibility. Could this be a truck driver? Very high possibility. One of the things that this guy did was that he bought a burner phone, he paid cash for it, and he only had it activated long enough for his communication with Shelby. And there was a couple other girls that looked just like Shelby, same type of build, petite, white, blonde. And after the murder, he had the phone turned off. So, And by doing that, it made it to where the police couldn't trace anything on it. And it had been long enough that the surveillance at the place where he had purchased the phone had already been recorded over so there was no surveillance for them to get to try to further identify this guy and i'm sure that this guy probably didn't think that there was a camera in that apartment 
And the quality of that thing, um, an expert looked at the camera and he said that it's like one tenth of a megapixel. I don't think they've had a camera like that since the 20s. <laughs> you know, if, if you happen to recognize this apartment and you're from Houston or you visited Houston and you were in this, this apartment and you remember this day, maybe you were there, go take a look at this video. But there's some people in the video when he is walking out, look like they're messing around on their phones, but there's some people sitting down and they would have seen him. Despite the fact that he, when, when he went in, he didn't have his sunglasses on. When he came out, he had sunglasses on and he has his left hand in his pocket. One of the reasons that it makes me think either the hand was injured, which I know that the detectives had said, and I'm wondering if he was bitten, if, if it was a bite mark, because yeah. that would have been something very like you having a little cut, no big deal if you had a little scratch, but if somebody bit you, if you have like a major bite mark on your hand, people are going to notice that. So you would definitely want to hide it. So if you're somebody who could have been in the apartment that day, when you look at that video and you were one of the people sitting on the couch and um, you think that you have recollection from back then, I probably wouldn't, to be honest with you, but it would be great if we can get some, you know, credible tips. If you are prior military and you've had this type of knife training I would encourage you to go take a look at this video and see if you recognize this individual, if this is somebody that you served with. It scares me that, yeah, Shelby was a victim, but it scares me that he's out there to do it again to other women. I do have a lot of resentment towards myself because of this situation. I do hate myself a lot because of the situation but I'm trying to learn to understand the situation and tell myself it wasn't my fault it'd be like if one of your kids got killed you wouldn't feel the same way because you would feel like you couldn't protect them and that's what she was she wasn't just a sister to me. She was my child. I took care of her. I fed her. I clothed her. I brushed her hair. I picked life out of her head. I, I took care of her. So she was like my child. It's hard to try to understand and tell yourself it's not your fault. Knowing that it's really not, but you still keep putting yourself down for it. I've been trash talking people saying I wasn't a good sister her and this I mean, even those comments you sit there and read through the comments. I mean just comments like that makes you second guess everything that you've put yourself to. So running a page and trying to put Shelby's story out there is a lot more difficult than what a lot of people would imagine it ever be because then you got backlash from thousands and thousands of people talking trash about you saying you are a bad sister and this and that. I mean, so you're already putting yourself down, telling yourself that you couldn't protect her. And then you got all these other people saying the same thing. And that's why I'm looking for help on trying to run Support Team Shelby. Even if it's just to repost a link or if it's to repost a story I've already posted or post a picture of Shelby or whatever the 
case may be, just to keep her page going while I'm away. Keeping that page up and running and the, my main thing, and I've been trying. I mean, it's not my main. It is because that's how I do it. Other than get in touch with like people like y'all, that's that's my only way because I'm not in Houston where I can just travel and be like, hey, have you seen this person? Did you see this person? I mean, that's my only way of supporting her at this point other than communication with podcasters or trying to reach out to news articles or trying to reach out to crime stoppers. If you recognize the man in the CCTV images on our website, on Facebook, on Instagram, or on the page designed for this putrid killer and the ones like him, please reach out to Crime Stoppers at 713-222-TIPS. That's 713-222-TIPS, 8477. Or you can go to www.crime-stoppers.org. There's a $5,000 reward and you can remain anonymous. Or you can contact Detective Dustin Crowder from the Houston Police Department at 713-308-3640. Or you can reach him at his email address at dustin.crowder at houstonpolice.org. You can also contact the FBI at 800-634-4097 or at the email address vicap at leo.gov. That's a V-I-C-A-P at leo, L-E-O dot gov. Let's find this despicable monster who callously took the life of Shelby Thornburg Crocker and put an end to his reign of terror in Texas. In Texas. In Texas. In Texas. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.